Welcome everyone back to the Brocast. I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and I am joined this beautiful Friday morning by Tracy Pearson. Tracy, how are you today? I'm very good, Dave. It is a beautiful morning. It's a beautiful morning. Wow, you little crooner, you. Yeah, I know, I brought my, it up My heart you. went all a flutter. I bet it did. I bet it did. I mean, right now we're, what, hovering at like 82 in Los Angeles and the rest of the country is having serious, like, climate catastrophes. Yeah, I mean, I think we're due at some point here pretty soon. We're due. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we're well, gonna, we paid our dues with the fires, maybe. We're too. dancing through flaming raindrops right now. Oh, look, and poetic, too. I know. I'm just bringing it. I got everything. I've got all of my powers are here at your disposal. Uh, and and I, I got to tell you, I got to tell you, when I watch that Zoom of you, you're looking a little svelte. You're a looking li- kind of svelte. A little svelte. Damn. Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, uh, like, yeah, uh, you you looked you, you look like a mountain man with the beard and like the body. It looks like you've Damn. been out chopping wood. Hell yeah. 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 I can assure you no, but yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> Okay, that's great. We caught up. What do you want to talk about? Uh, I think, so, last I checked, this is a UCLA sports podcast. And we have uh, have some UCLA sports to discuss. We do. There was some big news um, this week. Some big, big news. Amari Bailey's mom is dating Drake. Incredible news. (laughs) Uh, Johnny Juzang. And Cody Riley both opted to withdraw, withdraw, withdraw from. It's the a tough NBA word. Draft. It's a it tough is. word. You're not wrong. It is, um, especially since I'm going through withdrawals, um, and that is that is pretty pretty significant. I tried to write a story that hit on, and, and then once I wrote out about seven points, I just said there are too many points. I give up, and I just ended the story. I loved it. Because there are so many things. It just keeps going on and on. It's the never-ending story, Dave. It's the, um, I was going to sing again. <laughs> no, go ahead, please. It's the never-ending story. Um, so, yeah, First. So the Johnny Juzang story, well, the thing is, and I think this is the thing we run into, a little behind the curtain for people, we've written that story now about six times since the end of the season, because, you know, that's the, that's the piece of news, and Johnny did the thing where he waited until the last possible moment to make his decision. So we had basically four months to continuously write about, well, what would be the impact of him staying? What would be the impact of him leaving? What would be the impact of him staying with Chris Smith? What would be the impact of him staying without Chris Smith? Um, so by the time we actually got to it actually happening, we've kind of, we've kind of explored the studio space, so to speak. We kind of did, but there was still more just to talk about. <laughs> we love to talk. Um, so anyway, um, the Johnny Juzing news yeah. is, all, is, is all very exciting. Um, I still think, you know, I thought your, your story touched on it pretty well because it became very obvious that like 10 minutes would be left for like three guys who contributed quite a bit this year. Um, and I'd also say, you know what, I did want to qualify that because I was just, you know, I forget what I'm doing. I've only, I, I've no, been no, no. doing this only a short time. <laughs> I threw that out without saying, I said 30 minutes. It could be anywhere from 26 to 30. No, I mean, but I, I think, don't. But I think yeah. it was actually beautiful because it totally, by you just kind of, you know, shorthanding it essentially, it totally yeah. encapsulates the problem, which I think still exists even with just Juzang returning and not Smith, which is, again, another story we went over earlier in the spring. Um, you do have to manage it like that because if you do give those guys 30 minutes and you might want to give your best players 30 minutes because 30 minutes is, you know, it's in that territory of normal. That's not in the exhausting territory of 34, 35 minutes. Uh, but if you do that, you are seriously marginalizing your bench uh, because there are um, four wings in that rotation who are absolutely going to demand major minutes. Um, and who, who knows with Jalen Clark, if Jalen Clark makes a leap this off season, then he might also be in that group. And then how do you manage it? So I, I think those, those existing, um, th- those minutes problems that we were identifying just after the season 
are still going to exist um, because they're adding they're adding a player to a Final Four rotation who wasn't there, Peyton Watson, and he is a five star. Um, and so even with Chris Smith gone, Chris Smith wasn't there for the Final Four. So you're adding a guy, not taking anyone away. Um, so managing that, uh, even still, I think that's going to be the big challenge for Mick Cronin this year is, okay, how do you insert Peyton Watson into a group that has a returning top scorer? It has its returning, like, super glue guy in Jaime Jaquez. What do you do? How does Peyton Watson fit in? And how does he fit in when you also have Jules Bernard, who just started through a Final Four? And I think are in observing what Mick Cronin, the challenge he has, he might not think it's a challenge. He might think it's just all a luxury, but I think he, he uh, considers Tiger Campbell, uh, Jaime Jaquez and, and, you know, by the end of the season, easily uh, Johnny Juzang as a little bit of, you know, three crutches. I, I mean, those guys played Jaime Jaquez played 35 minutes a game. Yeah. <laughs> How is he going to scale him back to 29 minutes? I can That's, see it for a start of a season, but it's hard to see that when you get to crunch time in big games, when you yep. get into the Final Four, or you get into the NCAA tournament again, or tournament basketball, which was what the last month of the season was, it's hard to imagine Jaquez playing like a strict 28 to 30 minutes a game. Just impossible to imagine. The guy I'm most worried about, I think everyone will agree, is is Jalen Clark. That's the guy I don't want to see get disgruntled and potentially transfer. Right. Because I think he has some amazing upside. Um, not that I don't like Jake Kyman. Uh, David Singleton would be a super senior the next year. Um, but Jalen Clark, I think, has so much potential to be so good at UCLA in so many ways, just defensively being able to guard literally the one through the four and maybe the five. Um, While having some promising offense, he started to show flashes. I would hate for him to get discouraged. Um, And and that's what I could potentially see happening. That's going to be the challenge. And, and probably initially at the beginning of the year, Peyton Watson's going to look really good, probably in practice. And he's going to, you know, generate some minutes and maybe Jalen Clark won't be so overwhelming. And if he gets lost in that shuffle or, or not. And remember, he picked up. I don't know if it was the majority of his minutes, but I'm going to say it um, because you was without a post player to guard anyone. So he went in there and, and defended the post last year. So he's not going to be doing that this year he's going to have to pick up his minutes as a wing so that's the that's the biggest challenge i think as a as an observer of ucla basketball i don't think mick cronin probably sees it as that much of a challenge he's going to play the guys he thinks give him the possibility to win next year and then sort it out later that's the way every coach thinks in the history of the world (laughs) so i'm and I know Mick Cronin thinks that way too. So, and then let's shift to just the post player. I mean, Cody Riley had a good season. He averaged 24 minutes a game and he was averaging a lot more towards the end of the season. Uh, now you got Miles Johnson, who's going to be basically the Jalen Hill role. How he, he didn't transfer her to, to play 18 minutes. So, what what do you do with Miles Johnson? And then he got Matt uh, Gideon. You you play who, you play him eighteen minutes. I mean the thing is, yeah, maybe he didn't transfer here to do that, but he's going to be in a rotation with a guy who just again helped carry UCLA to a Final Four. So I think the reality is he's going to be playing the Jalen Hill role from the beginning of last year, which was seventeen eighteen minutes a game, and that's just what it's going to have to be. Yeah, yeah, I I. I've heard that they are going to try to use a double post look at times just because with Miles Johnson and Cody Riley in the game, it could potentially be really great a matchup advantage, especially if Cody just keeps by the end of the year, he was, he was pretty reliable. All that outside jumper. If he can keep doing that, find that space, you know, and, and keep it spaced out, catch and shoot that and play a high low game. That's that's a pretty devastating option to have. Pretty slow. Uh, 
pretty slow, but I'm saying to be able to match up against other teams where there's no way they could defend that. So yeah, the, the issue, so the issue um, with that is if you add a second post to the five on the floor, you're taking a wing away, and the real crunch in minutes is the that wing five or six guys who are going to want minutes at the wing. Uh, uh, there's a crunch everywhere. There's a crunch at post too. But but you're right. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm just saying that there. I'm. I've heard that that is partially at least a plan just to give them that option to get them both on the court. Um, and Cody Riley, who, as we all know, is a hard worker, just, you know, in the gym, he's a gym rat, is shooting like a thousand shots a day <laughs> to prepare himself for something like that. So, but you're right. That's probably not going to be the majority of the, of the look that we get from this team next year. And it is going to be wing management pretty much um so yeah the question will be how even okay i said 30 minutes how do you keep those guys to 30 minutes you know tiger campbell uh, was almost at 34 minutes um johnny juzang was 32.4 minutes Uh, it's going to be a challenge i'm i'm telling you um what else do you see? I wrote a lot about it. What else do you see, Dave, as the immediate impact of, of, for this season of Johnny Juzang returning? Because all we've been talking about is how hard it is to manage minutes. I mean, it's obviously um, huge in that you get your um, uh, your I don't know shot creation machine back. Um, the the question will be, I think, for me, um, are you getting tournament Johnny, uh, where he was lights out, um, his decision making had improved, and his defense had? I mean, there were a couple of games in the tournament where he was legitimately very good defensively. Um, are you getting that from the beginning of the year? Um, and that, if that player returns, then this is, uh, he, I mean, all the hype is correct. Like this is a, a, a championship favorite. Uh, right now. Um, but yeah, getting him back, you, you're not putting that intense pressure on somebody else to emerge as, as a leading scorer. You're not putting that on Peyton Watson as, in his first year. You're not putting it on Jules Bernard. You're not putting it on Jaime. Um, it's, you know, still it's going to be Johnny as your primary perimeter scorer. Um, I'm interested to see him improve um, defensively, but also just as a facilitator. He's got really nice natural passing ability, but use it more. Use him more as like a secondary playmaker, more than just um, a guy creating his own shot. Um, but, I mean, it's it, it was the the final piece they needed because, I mean, when we were talking about this when it, you know, a couple months ago when it looked a little bit more likely that Juzang might leave, um, that was the big question mark, was whether they would have somebody who could emerge as a, you know, primary scoring option and now they don't need to look for that again um so yeah that'll be exciting i I find it interesting too uh because there's a lot of discussion if you go outside our little bro universe you see uh, other fans discussing well you know johnny juzang struggled for most of the game he just got most of the season he just got hot in the tournament i see that argument i understand it but it's simplified. It's also that, um, and, and then they and then they cited his performance in in the NBA Combine, where he he looked like early season Johnny Juzang. And the element that a lot of people aren't that they just don't know is, uh, I see it as an evolution. He he started in Mick program uh, Mick program Cronin's program. Kind of, you know, got it. And then he started to realize what Mick wanted him to do and what he, and you know, Mick was, I mean, uh, Mick asks a lot, you know, he's, he's up your butt pretty much. <laughs> and you could see it taking hold as the season uh, wore on. And then it all came to fruition in the tournament in the combine. I didn't see Mick Cronin on the sideline over there yelling at him. <laughs> and, I think a lot of the ele- the element to Johnny Juzang being good in the tournament and toward the end of the season was that little guy on the sideline who Mick, uh, who Johnny Juzang is playing for. Um, 
I I think we're going to see maybe not that tournament Juzang, but like I wrote, somewhere in between. Better than season Juzang, but maybe even closer to tournament Juzang. Um, because it's an, he's evolving, he's getting better, he's developing, and he does that Mick Cronin coaching him. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Um, I think he definitely took to the coaching uh, over the course of the year. Um, so I think that's probably likely. But look, we just got to air all the concerns here. That's what sure. we do here on, the, uh, sure. on, on, on this program, this, this podcast. Um, and then some of the other things that they're citing out there in the rest of college basketball land. Is don't forget, UCLA struggled most of the season. They just got lucky during the tournament. And that's another simplified version of... Uh, if you remember, uh, UCLA lost its best player, then pro- one, what you would say its second best player, and then was still in first place in the Pac-12, and then lost four really close games to four teams that... Did they all make... They all made the Sweet 16, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that that kind of explains that. Um, yeah. In retrospect, the Pac-12 was super, super strong last year. Really, yeah. really, really strong last year. Um, and UCLA was very, very, very competitive in the super strong Pac-12 without two of its best players. So I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's a huge through line. Now, obviously, I mean, we nitpicked throughout the way and there were a bunch of like you know, low-key issues as they were working through losing two of their best players. I mean, it's just um, the fact that they made that run um, and did it um, in the way that they did. Again, uh, defense, toughness, all that kind of stuff that um, that these weren't fluky things. It wasn't like, oh, it was just because Johnny Juzang was lights out shooting the ball. He was, for sure, uh, but they also were just out-toughing these teams the whole way through, and we know that's uh, one of the selling points, one of the building blocks for Mick Cronin's program, so that's something you can imagine sustaining. That's something you can imagine carrying over to season after season after season. Um, So I think people who are talking about it as if it was just Johnny Juzang got hot, and uh, actually they just got lucky, uh, completely missing what actually happened in the NCAA tournament, because that was basically uh, Mick Cronin's uh, perennial UCLA emerging, um, you know, more or less fully yeah. formed. Um, like we said, there were a lot of things I'm looking forward to seeing how the return of Johnny Juzang impacts the team. Um, one major thing that we've seen a lot of it, obviously, because he was on the team last year, but the one thing we haven't seen is how, what the dynamic is with Peyton Watson. Um, we talked about it last year. The one thing that offense was really missing, the half-court offense at least, was anyone who was able to put the ball on the floor and penetrate. Uh, really didn't have it. Really. Uh, maybe Tiger Campbell, but sort not of. a wing, uh, sort of. Peyton Watson right now, his offense, uh, uh, he can sh- he's a decent shooter right now. Not a great, great shooter, but a decent shooter. But he's pretty tough off the dribble because he's really long, but he's got a good handle for his size. So he's able to put the ball on the floor, and it's hard for people. When you're trying to defend someone that big and that long, when he, when he, if he has a good handle, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to defend someone like that. So he'll be able to penetrate. Once you get a penetration element to this offense and thinking about Johnny Juzang waiting for a kickout, um, that's, that's really an exciting element of, of the offense that we really didn't see. They, they, they had to generate looks for him in other ways last year, uh, with a lot of ball movement, with a lot of screens, a lot of ISO uh, at the end. and a lot of isolation in the end. Um, <laughs> so that's going to be an ele- a new element that I think Peyton Watson will will bring, and that that's pretty that's pretty exciting to think about. Yeah, the, having yeah. a playmaker who can create off the dribble a little bit. I mean, I think we'll expect a little bit more from Tiger, but having anybody who can um, you know penetrate with a real threat to score because I think that's the drawback for Tiger. Of course, he can get into the lane more or less whenever he wants, um, but his ability to score in the key can get a little bit 
you know, sometimes he's good at it, sometimes he isn't, but he needs to be a consistent threat to score off the dribble to really get defenses to collapse. Um, the the other thing that's really interesting, um, given our new environment of name, image, and likeness, you'd have to think Johnny Juzang might generate some NIL money in the next year. Um, so two guys. So Johnny Juzang for sure. Jaime should Jaime. be making bank in LA. Yep. Like yep. Mexican basketball player in Los Angeles, he should yep. be making a ton of money. Yep. I was thinking that we'd bring them both in on bro. I could pay them like, I mean, Dave, what do you think? Like $100 a month? Just to put their picture up? Just No, they could write like a column. You know, I need about 20 hours a week. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Johnny, can you just break down what you did in this game? There's been a little bit of a thread on the board about it. Thanks. And, it, and it's an exclusive contract. He can't sign any other NIL with anyone else, just bro. He's got to wear bro shirts underneath. Johnny, like a, do you think a t-shirt that says bro on his, on his shoulder underneath his use I'm just imagining the middle of January. Johnny, um, do you think maybe you should be playing a little bit less selfishly? Can you can you can you write write up like five hundred words? Nothing nothing major. Just write it up for the board. And, and, and part of the deal is whenever he's interviewed, he's got to say bro. <laughs> no, we find we, we find the bro shirts and we have him wear one in his post game interviews. And when he's being interviewed on national television, he's all, hey hey uh, Jay Billis, bro. <laughs> I, <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, it's fine. Uh, yeah, no, I think there's going to be money to be made for Johnny um, and Jaime. Um, and if these guys make another run at the Final Four, basically everybody. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's pretty exciting, too. Uh, and if he helps them make another Final Four run or a very successful season, pretty much cements you know, Mick Cronin as – you know, the guy who has uh, the UCLA program is now cemented as among, uh, you know, now elite college basketball program. Again. Oh, whatever. I mean, if they have a if they have a really good regular season, I think it's there. Um, yeah, that's what I mean. Tournament, Overall, tournament basketball is always a crapshoot, uh, even if you've got that like toughness element that I'm sure is going to be a, a major backbone of Cronin's program going forward. It's still a crapshoot. I mean, they still came very close to losing a lot of those games in the tournament this past year. Um, but I meant an overall successful season that they could after this last one. Yeah, yeah. That you would feel the program is now firmly among the elite in college basketball, and then recruiting picks up. I mean, like I've been saying about the 2022 class, uh, I can I can reveal that UCLA had a lot of guys from the transfer portal, contact them or are interested in transferring this year. They had to turn them down. They were, they were full for most of that time. Um, you'd have to anticipate another successful s- season. The, it will be a, you know, a very similar situation where yeah. they have a lot of... So if you're, if you're not certain about a 2022 prospect, about whether you want to take him or not, I can completely see the rationale behind waiting for the transfer portal. This, you know what, you know what this is? This is Chip Kelly's recruiting uh, approach after Chip Kelly went to the college football playoff. Why did you have to bring up Chip? We were having a nice conversation about the UCLA basketball program, and then you started talking about football. Because it, it, it's it's literally the, it's the same, but you need success to do this. So it makes sense when the basketball program did it. And it, okay, I'm sorry, I brought it up. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we no, are going to have to talk about football because you went rogue and tweeted out something. I didn't go rogue. That's rogue. We, we're, That's we're, complete rogue. We're a spectrum. Hey, <laughs> we're we're no spectrum. I don't you, know what you've got you've got Mike on one end. He's he's picking ten and two. You've got you. You're 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 uh, you're straddling oh, a middle did ground. Did Mike pick ten and two? Yeah, no, he he tweeted out ten and tw- ten and two. Somebody, so Mike and I tweeted it out within I think about ten minutes of each other because I think we both were doing uh, the two four seven thing at the same time. 
And so I tweeted out my six and six, and then I think Mike, like five minutes later, tweeted out his ten and two, and somebody said they it showed up in their timeline on Twitter back to back. But yeah, no, I mean going rogue that you guys are giving up free information from the one authority on all UCLA sports. That's what I'm saying. What is a prediction? I think we've made like fifteen of them already this off season. Is it really free? Is it really even content at a certain level? Oh my God! Yes, it is, Dave. It's not the official think. baby. The official one's coming. The official okay. one. People are gonna it, get. People are gonna get four thousand words in the official one. Okay, so you do need to do a follow up tweet and say, but that's right now. This is. Oh no, no, that to, was in the tweet. Come, it was in my yeah. tweet. It was pending fall camp reports. <laughs> and and go to Bruin Report online to find out how I changed my mind in two constantly, months. always, forever. Um, okay, so the, are we transitioning to football? No, we don't have to yet. No, I'm going to put the little baby to bed. Little baby UCLA basketball. <laughs> you just liked all that alliteration. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to. You don't want to hear this part. UCLA basketball baby. Um, okay, so Johnny Juzan came back. That's great. All right, but so, wait, one thing too. I, they start workouts next week, I think. Yeah, no, <laughs> off season begins. Um, basketball yeah. workouts. Yes, basketball the team workouts. There, I mean, all that, all those guys back in the same gym. You know what they should yeah. do? They should do like an open workout for like fans to come. That'd be kind of cool. They uh, they really should. That would be they really really should. cool if they did that. Like some yeah. sort of like celebration thing. And I think Peyton Watson will have when he returns from what country are they playing that in? I'm not even sure. The the USA U19 team. He will have a like a little transition time where he can't participate or something, but I, then he'll be on, and then the whole team will be, the whole team will be intact. Very cool. So there you go. Yeah. Okay. All right. So football. Um, yeah. All right. So the football season is. I think we can safely say it's around the corner now. Uh, I'd say so. We've started our thirty top thirty countdown. I'm almost done with the opponent primers. We're going to start our fall camp previews a- pretty soon. We're at least we're about three weeks away yeah. from fall camp, so it's close. It's feeling closer. Um, so, two four seven reached out to basically everyone who works for a, for a two four seven site uh, to ask for our predictions for the season. So I'm deep yeah. in the throes of doing all these primers. I've got I think two left: USC and Cal. Um, but one thing has stood out to me um, writing all of these things, and I'm sure for a lot of you reading these things uh it's aside from stanford which is going to be terrible in 2021 everybody returns everybody uh, more or less i mean come on little little bit of hyperbole but everybody is returning a lot the our thing about ucla and i think this is still very valid is that ucla returns a ton right they're basically only losing osa digazua and Dimitri felton but that story is more or less true for like seven or eight Pac-12 programs. In the South, ASU actually returns more. Utah, yeah. in a normal year, would be returning basically the most production in college football. This year, it's like 30th, but in a normal year, it would be the most. The difference between what UCLA is returning and what Utah is returning is actually not that much. Um, so many teams are returning their full offensive lines intact. Um, and I think it can get... Because, you know, obviously, you listening to this and me, until I started writing these primers, uh, you can get so hung up on, like, what the team you're following or the team you're covering is doing, and you're like, oh, wow, because your context is normal years. Well, a team returning uh, basically 20 of 22 starters, well, they're, they're going to be really good. But that's so many teams this year. And the unfortunate reality that uh, is kind of keep popping up in my brain is that in a year where nor- uh, where UCLA would have been naturally more experienced and deep than most of college football, they're running into a little bit of a buzzsaw, which is the COVID eligibility rules, which have made everyone else also experienced and deep. Um, and so the end result is I was doing my grid of um, the schedule, and even with all that, I think UCLA is going to be pretty good, but then you factor in also they're playing Oregon and Washington instead of Oregon State and Washington State. And literally, if you flip that, I'd have them at 8-4. and four. Instead, it's 6-6. Six and six. Um, I've got them losing to ASU, Utah, USC, Oregon, and Washington. 
Um, and then the non-conference have got them losing to LSU and beating Hawaii and Fresno State. But if you just flipped the schedule where it was Oregon State and Washington State on that rotation, it'd be 8-4. and four. So it's a combination of factors. One is I think a lot of the South teams are actually experienced and deep in the same way that UCLA is. And then two, the schedule is not easy. It's, it's the hard end of the conference schedule. And so end result, 6-6. Six and six. I have some cogent arguments on both sides. I, I, for the longest time, remember, we always said the, the two biggest contributing factors to a team are returning experience and the schedule. And the, the biggest thing, well, probably the, big, the, the biggest factor to me is the schedule. The fact that they get, they do, they get Washington and Oregon and, and not Oregon, that could be two wins. That could be the difference literally, you know, let's say you even say six or eight wins or seven and nine. I mean, that's huge. That's really, really so huge. I, I, don't, I can't think of any other element here that is so clear-cut as impactful as that is. Um, so on that side of the argument, I, I definitely feel that I'm leaning towards like more toward you, right? Right. Um, when you start getting down into the details of experience, and I get your whole argument about how you think the COVID nineteen extra eligibility helped UCLA because it got us, you know, got UCLA a few more returning starters, but that it, it UCLA would have been at the high end of that returning experience without it yeah exactly without it and it boosted so many other players given all that the big thing too is to me and it tends to hold up is the returning starting quarterback at at each program um when you go when you go through the list i mean right now i agree with you about utah but who who are right now who do they have projected as Utah's starting quarterback? Uh, it was still a competition. Uh, let me see. It was a... No one, no one stepped up in spring and really won it. And Charlie Brewer... Everyone... Yeah, Charlie Brewer was good. Um, Cameron Rising was still out for most of spring. He was the... He was going to be the starter to begin last year. And then he got hurt, I think, in the first game. Um, and then it was Jake Bentley. So it's going to be technically... Um, a returning guy who was selected to be the starter if Cameron Rising wins out, and then otherwise it would be Baylor transfer Charlie Brewer. And I'll, and I'll tell you this, and I don't mean to be negative towards a player. If it's Rising, Utah's in trouble. Well, he, he, he's not a very good player. Uh, I'm just going to say that. I, I like Charlie Brewer, actually. I was impressed with him at Baylor. But Jake Bentley was maybe the worst quarterback in the league last year. And and he won the spot over. Oh, Rising got hurt. Rising won the yeah. spot, and then Bentley had to go in. That's my point. <laughs> Bentley was not good, and Rising beat him out. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm a little. Uh, the thing about that game is that Utah. That could. That's that's always tough. Um, ASU returning quarterback, returning a lot of guys. Uh, ASU to me, honestly. If there wasn't this other little pesky thing hanging over their heads, I would have picked ASU to win the Pac-12. I seriously would. I looked at their roster and they're, damn, they they are loaded in so many ways. And they got they got the quarterback who is one of the best quarterbacks in the Pac-12 and will have one of the best seasons. But it has to be thrown in how what's hanging over them will impact the season. I have to think it will. I have to think only they're if they be, do something. I think they will. I think there there's possibly going to be some coaches suspended by the beginning of the season. Maybe uh, that's based on a little bit of information and then a lot of speculation. Uh, SC. Sh- SC's SC. They always should be good. They've got a great returning quarterback. Um, offensive line's a little suspect. Defense should be very good, except they might be missing a defensive tackle. <laughs> um, but they're always worse than they should be. Always. I re-watched the UCLA-USC game just a couple of days ago. 
UCLA was better than they were last year. They in that game they absolutely outplayed USC. Um, so game, I'm not saying so I'm not this, saying UCLA is going to beat them. I'm just saying I think there are some certain wins, and then I think at Washington is the is the toughest game they have on the schedule because I think Washington will be pretty good. It'll be among the top three or four teams, best teams in the yeah. conference, and it's at Washington. I think that's going to be a very very tough game. Um, so the USC then, thing, one. But then wait, just to finish off. Okay. Then I think there were a bunch of games that are just serious toss-ups, and to make even to make calls. Pre, I know we got to do all that, but I I think those games are just are just too close to call. The SC game, the Utah game, the ASU game with what it has hanging over them. Those and I mean. LSU, I don't even – I've heard all about LSU. I've been reading about LSU. But I think all those games are winnable, and they're too close, as opposed to in past years, especially recently, when we, you clearly preseason look at a game and go, oh, no, UCLA's going to lose that game. <laughs> all of these games are such toss-ups to me. I think – I'm just saying I think it's really hard to do a preseason prediction at this yeah, point. Yeah, you know, I think you're – I think that's – Probably my big note from it all is that with all this experience and depth, um, a lot of these games are in coin flip territory for me. Um, and I think that's just going to be the reality of the year because I think it's going to... So on the positive side, I think we're all going to see a lot of well-played football this year because you're going to have a ton of really experienced teams that have a lot of depth. Um, and so it's going to be, I think, very fun to watch. Uh, Dave, who did you pick to come in last in the Pac-12 North? Okay, I've got Washington I'm State. Only, really? Yeah. I'm going to confess. I took. I put Stanford last. Stanford's <laughs> so Stanford's going to be really bad. Um, really I'm, bad. I've They're going to be bad. I've got them at four and eight overall, um, three and six in conference, just like winning some weird ones. Uh, but they're going to be really bad. Um, if, if you. I think that I think Vegas might be on that train too. I think they set Stanford's win total at three and a half, so I don't think there's any money to be made there. Uh, but if you find a book or something that's setting it at five wins, just load up. They're going to be so bad, just and absolute then, then trash. If UCLA loses to Stanford this year, I, I, look, I, I don't mean to be should, hyperbolic, but they should no, probably no, no. fire Chip Kelly on the spot. I was going to say it too. Um, and if it goes the way we think with Stanford. So there's going to be some major entertaining moments, right? Listening to David Shaw. Oh yeah, it's going to be really bad, guys. Like really, really bad. And here's the thing too: uh, while y'all might not like Stanford, I I don't really horribly dislike Stanford like a lot of UCLA fans, which I don't get anyway. But um, they're clued into David Shaw. A big portion of that of that fan base is now on to him that. Uh, the days where they had like elite recruiting classes and NFL offensive lines and uh, elite quarterback and big bruising uh, front sevens on the defense, those days are over. And he's just writing it out, accepting his check. Yeah. And Stanford's clued in. The Stanford fans are clued in. They're not like overly delusional about David Shaw anymore, which makes it. Very interesting, and in fact, very similar to UCLA fans towards the tail end of some uh, coaches' runs at UCLA. So that's going to be really, really fun to watch, I think. And I thought you would particularly have a lot of fun watching Stanford. Oh, man, they're going to be – it's going to be heinously bad. Um, They return – in a year where everybody returns everybody, Stanford returns like functionally no one. Um, and they weren't good last year. I think that's something that gets lost. I think they ended up with a slightly winning record, maybe four and three. I can't remember. Um, but it was such a soft four and three. I mean, everybody saw the UCLA Stanford game, but that was their entire season. Uh, Just winning these weird games where they had no business being in it. And they lose a bunch of guys from that team. They're going to be so bad. And all the good recruits when they're on that great recruiting stretch, they have all 
rotated out. Yeah, they're they're, they're, this out. is a they're Stanford gone. team. This is a Stanford team built on like top thirty or top forty recruiting rankings, not top twenty. And according to uh, uh, Bill Conley, hundred and twenty second in returning experience of one hundred and twenty seven teams. It's going to so, be so ugly, guys. <laughs> yeah, fade Stanford I, I, all year. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be that's going to be an. Um, yeah, and yeah, the, I mean, I, we're going off on a tangent, but how many years do you think? You know, Stanford is more conservative than UCLA when it comes to like. I, I didn't think they used the word firing someone. If it's uh, honestly, people aren't expecting it, but if it is awful this year, I wouldn't be shocked. Like, I don't if think it, they'll if, fire him. They I, won't fire him. If it's awful, if it's like two and ten, which is. Uh, it, it totally possible, like totally possible. They're two and ten this year. If it's that bad and like it's imploding, because the thing is, the program is already sort of imploding. There's a ton of transfers out every year. Uh, yep. Shaw's clearly lost his recruiting ability. Um, there's a lot of reason. If there's, if there are, and I don't know if these exist, but if there are real Stanford boosters who are like, this has got to end. This year might give them the ammunition to do it. I, I would be shocked if it happened this year. Like, I, I still think it's probably going to be two years, but dude. I think he's got to put like two or three seasons together of like three and nine. Here's the other thing to take into consideration Stanford can't accept transfers. So while the rest of college football is benefiting from the transfer portal, they ain't. Yeah. It's uh, this new era. I mean, the NIL era, the transfer portal, this is all, like, you can sit back and go, wow, here's some good factors. You should think UCLA could use these advantages and have a, there are so many factors going against Stanford football right now. It's not good. Um, No, but that's probably going to be one of the big, like, when they were asking in that um, that 247 poll, what's the big storyline, I'm like, I don't know if it's a big storyline, but it's the most interesting one for me is the complete implosion of Stanford football. Like that's, Of course you said that. But of that's course. what it is. I mean, everything else, like, look, everyone, like, okay, I'm talking about a 6-6 six and six UCLA team. But here's main takeaway. UCLA is going to be one of, like, in my estimation, like seven teams that are competitive for the league this year. I don't think they're going to win it. I don't think they're going to win the South. But they're going to be competitive. Like that's going to be a, a a solid UCLA team that's going to be in a lot of games. Stanford is going to be terrible. Uh, Washington State, I think, is going to be pretty bad. Colorado's not going to be good. Arizona's maybe going to be okay. Stanford is going to be the most unwatchable. I think they're going to mm-hmm. luck into a few games based on style of play because they still play that kind of terrible grinding style, um, and that can just flummox some teams sometimes. But they're going to be non-competitive a lot. Um, and it's going to be, I think when you're like doing the eye test at the end of the year, you're going to say, oh, Arizona, they showed us some things. You know, Jed Fish, he had some offense going. That was interesting. Stanford is going to be unwatchable, putrid mess all year. I, I, this is what I'm, I'm going to just make this rando, well, it's not random, but it's pretty out there. The UCLA-USC game decides whether... UCLA has a clearly successful season and decides the Pac-12 South and decides Chip Kelly's fate. Mm. That that gets him, I think, possibly to the eight win, because don't forget, they've got Cal the week after. It gets him the Pac-12 South championship. It gets him, it's all that. It's going to be the SC game that decides it all. Do you know, Let me let me quickly pull it up. Do you know how many uh, times UCLA has won in the Coliseum? Like, I don't know, in the last like, twenty years? I completely, yes. I don't know exactly, but I know that that is a thing. Because the thing is, it, those games, it's not even just that they win them all. It's that they're usually not close. Yep. Um, all right, so in the Coliseum, UCLA has won once, once since 97. Um, now, obviously, so has only won five uh, since 97, but only once in the Coliseum since 97. And I think I did it once. It, it, it's um, When I did the math on it, it's basically an average 10-point difference in the spread um, between the Coliseum and the Rose Bowl. Uh, 
for whatever reason, it's not a real road trip, but for whatever reason, that is a pronounced home field advantage for USC in this series. It's just such a dark, dank place to play. Yeah. That's the, yeah. I mean, even in this series where I think Chip Kelly has actually been pretty competitive in these games. I mean, they won in year one when it was not a good UCLA team, and then they <laughs> they should have won last year. I think that's a fair way to describe it in the Rose Bowl. Should have won. But Coliseum, they lost by 17. Um and yeah. yeah, that was also a weird game, but they lost by 17. Um, yeah. So that's something, and that was what I was going to say earlier, is that's something that's got to be built into the calculation. As weird as it is, because it's not a real road trip, it shouldn't be a real road game, it functionally is, and probably a more extreme one than going to Arizona or going to ASU. Uh, going to the Coliseum, for whatever reason, is a real home field advantage for USC. Absolutely. Um, so... Yeah. That's going to be a challenge. If that's the uh, game that makes or breaks it for Chip Kelly, uh, he's got a big um, big hurdle to leap there. Um, and yep. that's not to say it won't happen, because I think, we, I think we both agree this UCLA team should be Chip Kelly's best. I mean, even me saying 6-6, six and six, I mean, think about it. That's, that's his that's, best team. That's the best team. Um, and I think it's going to be a team that, even if it does go 6-6, six and six, you'll say, wow, they were... They're better than the record. It's just the schedule was a nightmare. Um, and uh, but even it, still, it this c- is going to be a tough one. Instead, of, uh, we won't even get into X, but X's and O's and the whole thing. But it just it just simply comes down to the defense. The yes. offense, uh, the offense, absolutely is going to be good. I, I I'd be stunned if that offense weren't good. They were good last year. They're going to be better this year. And Dorian Thompson Robinson, I think, will potentially have like an all Pac-12 season. The defense is the biggest question mark. I yeah. mean, if it just incrementally improves, they're at eight or nine wins. If it's about the same as it was last year, I'm with you. It's six wins. So one thing. So yeah, and so uh, getting a little bit into that because I think the, okay. off, the offense has limited ability to get a ton better. I mean, I think it was all, it's because it's already pretty good. Like yeah. getting another, you know, whatever big leap up is actually hard because you got to get into a top 10 offense there, um, which maybe it's certainly possible. Um, defensively, really tailed off at the end of last year. Still a marked improvement from previous years, but not even a top 50 defense. Um, looking at it this year, I'm going to say uh, analyzing things a little bit closer and looking at it, the loss of Osa Adigazua. That's the one where I really don't know how they're going to find that. Because when you look at the personnel, there's nobody who's like a perfect fit for what Odigazua was doing. Um, basically what position he played, but also his ability. Um, you know, just, It's his ability. They, yeah. I mean, Daytona Jack, uh, Jackson is, is the same type of player. Which is nowhere close in terms of He's just not ability. nearly as good. Yeah. yeah, and so, you know, you talk about if Jay Toia is coming in and if he's able to make an impact in year one, yeah, he's a defensive tackle and a run plugger, but is he going to be that guy? I don't think so. Otito Bania is not that guy. I mean, he's again, a big, you know, tough dude, but he doesn't have that level of quickness. Um, there's a, I mean, there's a live scenario where the defense, even with a year of experience, um, maybe doesn't improve a ton because the middle of it, you know, from Osa Digazua and then if Bo Calvert maintains his starting role as the middle linebacker, and then safety play continues to be, I think, especially on Blaylock's side, not so great, where the middle of the defense actually gets a touch worse, even while other parts of the defense are improving. And so that's the big thing I'll be listening for, watching for in fall camp, is what's going on up front, in the middle, um, are they improving there? And then also, um, is Bo Calvert either a whole lot better, or is Jordan Genmarkeith uh, suddenly getting some reps at middle linebacker. Um, and I think those are the things that will ultimately tell the tale whether this defense can, and I think your point is correct, if there is incremental improvement for this defense, this can be an 8-4 and four team pretty quickly um, because they were nearly that last year with a defense that was top 60, top 70. If they're a top 50 defense, then it's there. There's potential for this defense to be even better, but they've really got to figure out that middle. And if it's a top 40 defense with a top 15 offense, uh, then you really can start talking about the South and, and the Pac-12. 
If they had a decent defense by the time they played USC last year, they would have beat them by 17 points. I just watched that game. The offense was was great. Well, if they'd gotten US, if they'd gotten USC a few weeks earlier, because um, yes. the defense the defense Maybe. tailed off was the problem. It wasn't that. And they, why is that? Why do we think we've talked about it before? I think Did it's a couple things. Oppo- I think I think uh, opposing offenses kind of got the feel for it um, because essentially what it was is they were blitzing on like I don't know. Uh, 60, 70% of downs. Um, and I think other offenses started to get a feel for it. But then also, Osa Digazua's effectiveness went down considerably over the back half of the year. And I think it was fatigue. Um, if you remember earlier in the year, Odua Isabor was actually um, kind of his understudy at that position. Um, and then he went down uh, towards the end of the year. And then Osa was playing, I think, more reps. Um, so I think he got worn down a little bit. Um and he was not nearly as effective. Um, but I think he was actually a key linchpin because whenever they were getting anything um, out of a base look, it was more or less him creating a play. Um, so those combined factors, I think I think they got scouted for sure. Um, and they're going to have to be able to do a little bit more out of base this year. Um, but I, I think it was also... And Quantrez Knight, too. Um, his effectiveness went down uh, the last couple of games of the year. Um, and I think it was teams kind of keying on him, neutralizing that position, that role a little bit. And, uh, but yeah, I think it was ultimately a scout uh, thing. And uh, whether they can, you know, throw some more curveballs at teams uh, to start the year is going to be a key thing for Norwood and company. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, that's good. But maybe we should just end it on basketball. Basketball is going to be really good. We love basketball. Basketball is a great sport. Uh, we enjoy watching it, and UCLA is going to be really good at playing it this year. And recruiting is going to be exciting. It's going to be so exciting. And Mari Bailey's mom is is dating, dating Drake. Drake. Yeah, and that's also exciting news. <laughs> we love to hear <sighs> it, folks. We love to hear it. Yep. I'm, I mean, I wrote it on the forum. I think they'll be able to parlay that into like a recruiting pitch to moms of recruits. Come, let your son come to LA and you'll be able to date uh, a famous Canadian. A famous uh, rapper. Yeah. A famous Canadian. Okay. I don't know if the Canadian thing is really that attractive. Everyone likes Canadians. Or, nice. or maybe we could just set up Drake that he permanently kind of dates the moms. Oh, it's like a, it's like, um, you know, like a named position, like, uh, the, what, what Martin Jarman, what's his title? He's the like Nancy and Bob yes. Dukakis director yeah. of athletics or whatever. We could call him the Bruin report. Online. Yeah. No, he's the he's director the, yeah, yeah. of family relations. Yes. He is. He is the Drake of, uh, actually whoever dates the top recruits mom is just the Drake. <laughs> Love the Drake. Love the Drake. We love it, don't we, folks? All right. Uh, Well, that's that's it. We got nothing else. Um, For Tracy Pearson, I'm uh, I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online, and we will talk to you again next time. Continue to stay safe out there, please.